Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SCR on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Marilyn Hetrilis. Coming up, under what circumstances is it reasonable for the media to label an attack an act of terrorism? Plus, when the military attempted to take control of Turkey the other week, the CNN studios were on the hit list. But in the age of social media, can you ever really silence journalists? And in Ukraine last week, investigative journalist Pavel Sheremet was assassinated. Closer to home, a plot to kill journalists in Tasmania has been uncovered. If you're a journalist trying to report on international criminal conspiracies, just what are you up against? Joining me in the studio is contributing editor at New Matilda, Wendy Bacon. Joining us on the line is legal affairs editor at The Australian, Chris Merritt. Hi there. And also on the line, we have reporter and editor at Politico Europe, Zoya Sheftalovic. Hi, Zoya. Hi there. Sydney media went crazy for four hours last week over an attack on a police station in Maryland's in Sydney's west. The first broadcast mention of the word terror occurred just 15 minutes after the attack. Things escalated quickly. Coverage that followed centred around the incident being an alleged terror attack, an attempted terror attack and a suspected terror attack, leading to Liberal National Party MP George Christensen blaming Islam for the attack in a Facebook post. After hours of speculative reporting by the media, Assistant Commissioner Dennis Clifford said in a press conference, there's nothing to indicate this is in any way related to terrorism. We'll keep an open mind, but we're not leaning that way. Chris, when are the media right to label an attack terrorism? When it is terrorism, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, the, um, the incident at Maryland uh, last week, uh, it's not new, really. Uh, those who are old enough to remember how... Uh, news agencies used to conduct themselves might remember that when uh, the Spanish, the late Spanish dictator uh, Franco was on his deathbed um, Agence France Press managed to kill him I think it was four or five times I was working at AAP at the time and I remembered it but it, it, it's the scramble to be first with the news the problem is if you've got to get it right and the, the problem with, at Maryland's was that it would have gone away had um, or there wouldn't have been a problem had the initial reports accurately stated that it was suspected terrorism. It turned out to be a family law dispute, but it looked like terrorism at the time, but it wasn't confirmed. It's just bad journalism. Zoya, what's the harm in falsely reporting um, an attack as terrorism? I think it depends on the situation, but certainly from the perspective of someone working in the media, I think the harm is to the credibility of the reporter, it's to the credibility of the organisation. Uh, and I think also it does lead to people jumping to conclusions and potentially signalling certain actions that aren't appropriate in a situation. And you can actually force the hand of politicians by reporting that something is terrorism. Um, so I think it's, it's a multitudinal problem, both for the organisation that is doing the reporting and also just generally in terms of the response that you get to those attacks. 
What do you think, Wendy? Is it dangerous to jump the gun on this one? I think it's very dangerous and uh, I agree with Chris. Of course, it's just um, bad journalism. Look, I think one of the problems is that now and, uh, you know, how this actually happened, I'm not sure, but you would have had a police PR release uh, pretty quickly, then the first report goes out. What happens is journalists build on other people's stories. They're not making their own independent investigations. And actually, Chris mentioned a very good old example, but there was another example, and you'd think that newsrooms would have learned from that, but of course, things are a long time ago. And when the Oklahoma bombing happened. I remember the ABC reported that has also been a Muslim related actually in that case incident and of course that turned out to be a white supremacist and that all sort of came through on I think TV screens into the ABC newsroom at the time and so there was a huge, um, I mean it's in journalism textbooks, it was discussed a lot at the time. Again in some war reporting there was uh, in Iraq, you know, there were lessons learned about not jumping the gun, standing back and saying look maybe we don't know and it was a classic case of those lessons being unlearned and I think probably there should be just really strict guidelines, particularly in newsrooms and you know AAP, all that sort of thing, of just don't do it. And as Chris said, this turned out to be possibly what will emerge as a very sort of multidimensional story involving a family law dispute, someone under extreme stress, someone who clearly snapped, uh, did something very dangerous. But, you know, there's a, another social story behind that. Another point I would raise is if it hadn't been Marylands, which is in Sydney, Sydney's west, but it had been in Double Bay, or Vaucluse, which is in Sydney's east, would that same error have even been made? And I think it is dangerous because it plays into a, to narratives which are, are very unhealthy. I think. Mm. And racist narratives, actually. Mm. And on the recent Munich massacre, the police chief said that it was inspired by a terrorist attack, yet not terrorism ex- itself, which reflects the increasingly blurry line between terrorist and lone wolf. Um, Zoya, is there a tendency for media outlets to call attacks terrorism when they can be linked to Islam? I think there is a tendency, and I think that stems from the fact that it's a fine line. I mean, the question is, at what point is something terrorism and at what point is it a lone wolf attack? Um, Certainly at Politico Europe, um, our kind of uh, rule book for this sort of thing is we follow what the authorities say. So we don't actually take into account other reports. We wait until someone officially confirms something. In the case of the Munich attacks, though, the authorities were themselves actually saying while this attack was going on, um, they were themselves saying that it looked like Islamic terrorism. So in that situation, it was a tricky one because... Um, I believe we did report that it was potentially motivated uh, by Islamic extremism because there were several sources who were saying that it was. And I think that's another issue that we have today. So given the news cycle, given the fact that everyone has access to mobile phones, you've got people tweeting about it on the scene, you end up having this pressure in the newsroom to match what other people are doing. And in that sense, it's also a pressure on authorities because, for example, um, during the Brussels attacks I was covering in Brussels, I was there at the scene, and the authorities themselves were getting slammed with requests of comment from the very moment after the thing itself occurred. And I don't think they would necessarily have had the facts at that point, but there's a degree of pressure both on them and on the journalists to actually get to um, the news first, get the news out there. So certainly it is a difficult situation now. There are lines that are difficult to draw in some of these cases. 
And I think it's not helped by the fact that authorities are willing to go on background or are willing to leak information that they don't necessarily actually have confirmation of. And Chris, do you think liberal media may have a tendency to minimise actual terror attacks as lone wolf attacks that aren't related to Islamic State? Look, I think um, uh, the short answer is yes, but the, the, the long answer is this. I, I think um, uh, if, if media is a spectrum, I, I think there's a, a grave risk that media at both ends of that spectrum um, uh, report terrorism through a political prism. And I think it's incredibly dangerous. Um, one example on one end of the spectrum um, that kind of it doesn't really relate to terrorism, but it, it raises the same issues as the uh, the New Year's Eve uh, sexual assaults uh, throughout Germany. Um, police at the time um, said everything was fine, nothing no, nothing to see here, no no real problem. And it later emerged there were thousands of um, sexual assaults going on in Germany, mostly perpetrated by migrants from Islamic countries. It, it would have been good for the media to report that at the time. Admittedly, it's difficult when you've got the authorities complicit in covering up reality. But the point I'm getting, getting at here is that the media's credibility will be undermined if it allows its political leanings to influence the way in which it reports objective facts. What do you think on that note, Wendy? Look, I do agree with Chris that it is extremely important uh, to report the facts, but I don't necessarily think that one can rely on authorities to tell the truth. And and you know, a major example of that was the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, when you think of the implications, and it was all recognised, you know, years ago, and now it's had to be re-recognised with the Chilcot report. And I mean, that was just a huge example of people accepting, you know, something that authorities had said to them. Obviously, however in a major media event like a big attack, well then I think obviously to some extent, I agree with what Zoe said, you, there's pressure on the authorities and to some extent you've got to, you've certainly got to report what they say. But I don't know about the um, example in Germany because actually I think it probably doesn't matter if it wasn't reported at the time, isn't it more important to wait and actually wait until, you know, I'd really like that sort of material to be absolutely verified before I would, as a journalist, want to report it, particularly because it could turn out to be half right and half wrong, you know. Mm. And Sylvia Hayes wrote in Huffington Post recently, if you are watching breaking news, beware. You are not being informed so much as entertained. You're watching speculation and emotional spin doctoring. So what would more circumspect reporting on unfolding news situations actually look like? Well, one of the things that, of course, it, it's thrown up, and, and this has all been played out before, as I said before, with with uh, war reporting, and where you know it's suddenly you know lots and lots of people land in some distant place, and then start you know having to give feeds back, and often there's other stuff going on in the studio, and and you know I think uh, it can look absurd, of course, to be standing there in you know. PNG or in Iraq or wherever it is saying actually nothing is happening here but it's much better to do that and I think the extent to which I mean it's so response such a responsible job to be reporting uh, violence and, and political crises that in fact if it isn't entertaining the 
it may be bad for media business, but the fact is journalism, uh, and I know it's all it's fine for me to say this being outside the media and some journalists would say, well, you're in the situation, you know, it's very different. But, but you know, the job of a journalist is actually to follow the code of ethics and report honestly and only do that. Zoya, what do you think? What does the media stand to lose going down that more circumspect route? Look, I think there is a degree of a competitive... Um, competitive disadvantage if you don't do it. And, for example, at Politico Europe, uh, we cover very closely the European terror attacks, the various terror attacks. Um, And what tends to happen in the EU newsrooms is that people will set up live blogs, um, and rather than have one uh, story, one larger story that gets put out there, um, you'll have incremental developments that are placed into the live blogs. Everyone does it. And it's something that gets done basically every time there's anything that seems like it could be a, a terror attack. We tend to wait. Um, we wait until there's a confirmation that it is a terror attack, and then we start up our live blog. But there is definitely pressure on us to do it earlier because, for example, The Guardian or the local papers, wherever they may be, they'll start them up straight away. You'll end up getting little tidbits, tidbits that aren't confirmed, tidbits that may not actually um, may not actually end up being what they seem, people tweeting, that sort of thing. That ends up going on the live blog. I think there's a lower standard, a lower burden on that sort of reporting. When you have uh, terror attacks or any sort of big terrorist-related event, we see huge spikes in our reader numbers immediately on Politico. People go um, onto the site to see what's happening. I think there's a degree of trust because we don't tend to cover stuff that's not um, that's not confirmed by authorities. But if we didn't have anything there, if we didn't in- immediately place a story as a placeholder or immediately start up some sort of information, I think we would lose those readers and our numbers would fall and that would be certainly very dangerous for our bottom line. Hmm. Chris, what's your opinion on this? Why is the Was It Terror question so crucial? Look, I... I... I think it's uh, crucial if you see the world through a political prism. Um, I think from a journalist's point of view, it's more important to explain what's going on, to report what's going on. And if at the early stages of an event it's uncertain whether it is terrorism or it's not terrorism or it's a family law dispute, uh, uh, that should be reported and it should be part of the unfolding story. Is this a terrorism attack? Is it not? Still unknown. But I think the, the, um, it's, it's wrong, um, frequently wrong, to see uh, a dichotomy, if you like, between a terrorism attack and the lone wolf uh, wacko who um, uh, might be undertaking acts of violence. Frequently, there's a crossover. Um, uh, very frequently, uh, just because someone might be mentally unhinged doesn't mean to say that uh, their acts of violence can't also be a terrorism attack, particularly if uh, in, in the uh, the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney. Um, perfect example where we've got a man who is clearly unhinged, um, aligning himself with Islamic State, stating he's got a bomb, um, taking people hostage, resulting in uh, deaths. Um, and yet there was a struggle to, ha- to determine how this incident should be characterised. In the the days immediately afterwards, even the press council um, was struggling to to decide how do we characterise the reportage? Did the media go across the line? I think 
in retrospect, it seems pretty clear that the, um, the reportage at the time was reasonable, given what we now know. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilis, and I'm speaking to Wendy Bacon, Chris Merritt and Zoya Shaftelovich. Earlier this month, a military helicopter landed in the parking lot of the CNN studios in Turkey. Fifteen soldiers barreled out, forcing their way into the building and forcing CNN's employees out. The military quickly gained control of several broadcasters, including Turkish state TV, where an anchor was ordered at gunpoint to declare the military had taken control of the government. In the end, CNN's broadcast was only off air for an hour. Meanwhile, journalists were tweeting and posting live video about the ordeal on Facebook. In the days following the failed coup, President Erdogan's government cancelled licences for 24 radio and television stations thought to be linked to the US-based cleric Fethullah Gulen. Turkey has now ordered the closure of dozens of media outlets. This week, the government issued arrest warrants for 42 journalists and another 47 for former staff of the once pro-Gulen Zaman newspaper. The CNN takeover was over in an hour. Zoya, was it poorly plotted or do you think it was intended more so for symbolic intimidation? Look, uh, what we are hearing now is that what actually happened was that the coup itself had been in the works for some time. Uh, the authorities, particularly the government supporting authorities, had gotten wind of the coup. And it looks like basically the army had to act sooner than they otherwise would have, sooner than they were prepared to act in order to get ahead of uh, a government um uh, government uh, backlash, essentially, against the coup plotters. We're also hearing that it's quite likely that Erdogan was aware that a coup was brewing and that he allowed it to get that far or to get to the point that it got to because he wanted to use it as an opportunity to sweep through the ranks. So in addition to the journalists you mentioned, there have been roughly 60,000 people, educators, school teachers, university lecturers, uh, police officers, civil servants who have either been dismissed from their jobs or who have been arrested uh, and who are going to be tried. Many of them have disappeared, so we actually don't know where a lot of them are. So it seems that it was a consequence of, on the one hand, the coup plotters being um, having to actually uh, having to actually execute the plot before they were ready. Uh, and the uh, government authorities being prepared for it. Now, in terms of the actual coup itself, was it a success? Um, what did they do wrong? Uh, the army, the Turkish military, has actually performed a number of successful coups in the past. Uh, they tend to be more secular. They tend to uh, undertake a coup when they feel that constitutional freedoms and the separation between um, the church and state in Turkey is threatened. And so the army actually has experience with this. They know exactly how to do it. And the very first thing that they generally do in Turkey is they shut down all forms of media. In this case, there were only a select number of media operations that were targeted. They just didn't have the manpower to do it. They had a few tanks, some very, very young plotters who were undertaking the coup, a few helicopters. It was just not enough to actually take down all of the media that they would have intended to take down. And CNN Turk is actually a pro-government station. Um, so, uh, uh, so uh, sorry, uh, yes, so it's, it's, it's a station that was not particularly important. It's a small station. 
station, the state-run agency um, is larger and has more access, but it had all the hallmarks of a premature, um, premature uh, actual launch. So that's what we're hearing um, from our sources on the ground in Ankara and in Istanbul. And certainly um, this was a coup that was going to fail because it just didn't have the resources that the coups in Turkey are normally likely to have. Mm. Wendy, didn't the Arab Spring signal that people will find a way of speaking out, that social media empowers everyone to be a citizen journalist? Well, look, I'd like to comment on the live blogging thing and social media in relation to the um, sort of mini Turkey, well, it wasn't a mini coup, but it was certainly a failed one. Because actually, I looked at some of the Twitter of that takeover of the CNN station. It was a really good example of where people were reporting what they could see on the spot factually. And I think I think that is a really great use uh, for social media and it certainly did work in Egypt during the Arab Spring. I think it's where people are jumping to conclusions about what, what's driving it. I mean, that's very inappropriate for a Twitter stream. But I'd also like to say something about the t- situation in Turkey because... I mean, it's really like it suddenly comes onto our screens and we're suddenly aware of it. But actually, there's a struggle, a very serious struggle going on about media freedom in Turkey over a couple of years. And a journalist called Jeff Parrish, if people are interested, if they go to Dateline, did an excellent story earlier this year on the situation of some particular journalists in Turkey. And even on June the 20th, um, there were uh, Human Rights Watch and other organisations who got a movement going there. And two journalists were, um, I think, a number of journalists were criminally charged during June. So I think the actual attack on the journalists is a bigger and a more ongoing situation than what exactly drove that coup and was it, you know, sort of um, uh, in a way more symbolic in the end than not. I think the more interesting question is how it fits into the longer flow of um, Turkish events. And now that the tanks are no longer prowling the streets, Chris, the visuals aren't as compelling for mainstream international media of Turkey. Do you feel the spotlight has been taken off Turkey too soon? Yes, clearly. Uh, you can see that there's um, uh, the aftermath is uh, far, far more interesting than um, the, uh, what was it, two or three hours before it was uh, put down. The, the aftermath is extraordinary. The Turkey, a uh, country that wants to sign up with the European Union. It's a member of NATO, conducting itself like a... Well, I wouldn't want to... (laughs) Conducting itself in a way that's not appropriate for a a country that wants to be a member of the European Union. Let me put it that way. Uh, It's extraordinary. uh, The crackdown on the the press was pretty bad in Turkey uh, before the coup attempt. it's, It's just appalling afterwards. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilis, and I'm speaking to Chris Merritt, Wendy Bacon, and Zoya Shaftalovich. Last week, Pavel Sheremet, a pioneering journalist and outspoken critic of leaders in Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, was killed in a car bomb in Kiev. Colleagues said they believed the killing was retribution for a lifetime of speaking truth to power. And investigators are considering Russia's special services had a hand in the attack. A media freedom representative said the murder reminds us all that the safety situation for journalists in Ukraine must be addressed in an effective and timely manner. In June last year, an undercover Australian journalist pledged his allegiance to Islamic State in a home video. He said he was willing to fight in Iraq and Syria. The unnamed reporter was contacted by ISIS recruiter and he said he worked in communications, so he was given the task to assist in the assassination of four journalists in Tasmania. The undercover journalist refused. 
One of the concerns this man had was being held responsible for a criminal activity in his effort to expose it. A journalist isn't a government spy. Wendy, what protections does a journalist have in this kind of situation? Well, they don't actually have any. Um, the only argument you could use for going undercover has always got to be a very strong public interest one. And actually creating a situation, I'm not sure how you, you know whether ethically even, let alone in the courts, how you would um, go with that. But, you know, this isn't like confidential sources where there's a long traditional uh, right for journalists to uh, keep their sources confidential. This is sort of going undercover. And in any sort of undercover, whether it's by journalists or anyone else, there's always a danger that you could be triggering the crime as much as um, preventing it or exposing it. So, you know, I think journalists would need to be very careful in that situation. I would they're the appropriate people to be doing undercover operations. And, you yeah, know, um, I'd say I wouldn't expect any protection, actually. And um, Chris, how concerning is a threat like this to journalists working in Australia? Well, first up, I don't think it's appropriate conduct by the journalist. Um, I can't imagine any mainstream responsible media outlet allowing um, that sort of conduct by by a journalist. Uh, that that's point number one. Um, uh, point number two is it's guaranteed to uh, lead to all sorts of um, problems for the authorities. So for what benefit? I mean, I find it self indulgent, quite frankly. Zoya, can you tell us a little bit about the investigative journalist murdered in Ukraine and why he's been such a big target now and in the past? Sure. Uh, Pavel Shedemyat, um, he was a very famous Belarusian journalist back in the day. Um, and generally, the thing is that so his, his death has been blamed by the Ukrainian authorities on Russia. So several government spokespeople and several government ministers have come out and said, you know, this, this is Russia doing this. But in actual fact, he has been a thorn in the side of the Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian authorities. He's uh, a, a crusading journalist, I would say, in some ways. And, and his crusade is, uh, is on uh, anti-corruption measures. It's on transparency. He, uh, his famous report, and the reason he originally became a persona non grata, was because he demonstrated issues with border controls between uh, Russia and other countries. Um, and, and he generally has basically been the sort of journalist who reports on corruption where he sees it. So he started his career in Belarus. He then moved to Russia. He criticized Putin heavily. Uh, for various crackdowns on press freedoms over the last several years. And he's more recently moved to Ukraine, where he reports equally um, on various Ukrainian uh, issues. He, was, uh, he supported the pro-EU um, parties in the Ukrainian election, and he has actually been in the firing line in Ukraine over mm. several stories that he's done looking at government corruption. So he's generally an unpopular guy, or was rather generally an unpopular guy in Eastern Europe. And it's hard to point the finger at any particular government for his murder. I think that there are several people who would have wanted him dead, both mm. in um, Russia, but also in Ukraine and Belarus. That's all we've got time for on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests Wendy Bacon, Chris Merritt and Zoya Shevtelovich. Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on our podcast. My name's Marilyn Hetrilis. You can catch us at the same time next week.